0: Sketch 16 of Zora boys at home and abroad or how to succeed this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org zora boys at home and abroad or how to succeed by william alexander mckay sketch 16 ds burdick or an octogenarian bicyclist Isaac Burdick, father of the subject of the present sketch, was born in the state of New York, on November 29, 1782, was married to Abigail Sage in August 1803, and moved with his wife to West Oxford, two miles east of Ingersoll, where nine children were born to them. Here they endured great hardships. In 1814 the only gristmill in the place was burnt by the American soldiers, and many of the horses taken away, after this, the people had to take their grist to Norwich on horseback, and as horses were very scarce, many were compelled as best they could to pound the wheat into flour at home in eighteen twenty one Mister Burdick, with his wife and family, came to Zora. He took up four hundred acres of land, being lots nine and ten on the third concession, thus becoming the third settler in the township. On this farm was erected the first frame barn in Zora, part of the framework of which can still be seen. Isaac Burdick was a man of energy, devotion, and intelligence. He was the first conveyancer, the first schoolteacher, and the first class leader in Zora. D. S. Burdick, our present subject, was the youngest member of the family. He was born on July 3, 1819, so that he was only two years of age when he came to Zora. In 1845, he was married to Mary Ann Graves. Three children were born to them, of whom only one is now living, Mrs. A. Macaulay of Ingersoll. Mr. Burdick and his wife are spending the evening of life in circumstances of much comfort in Ingersoll. The writer recently spent a very pleasant hour with him, and learned many interesting facts concerning the early settlement although in the 82nd year of his age he is almost as active as a boy and in good weather delights to ride his bicycle 3 or 4 miles every morning before breakfast this good health he attributes to total abstinence from alcoholic liquors plain diet and plenty of outdoor exercise his aged wife is equally healthy and happy mr burdick likes to remember that his family was the first in zora to sign the temperance pledge This pledge was presented for signature by Mr. George Clark of Woodstock, who was working for a temperance society in Montreal. Temperance, says Mr. Burdick, not only helped to preserve my health, but it also greatly conduced to my present comfortable position financially in life, as it enabled me to lay aside something for the rainy day. My education, said Mr. Burdick, was acquired under difficulties that the youth of to day know nothing about. The schoolhouse was at Cody's Corners, that is, three miles from our house. Thither I walked each morning, and took my turn, with a number of other boys, in kindling the school fire from Green Wood. My school teachers were my father, George Harris, Mervyn Cody, J. Fraser, S. Lewis, and William Kingston the last-named taught at Piper's Corners, and now lives in Ottawa. He was certainly my best teacher. The teacher boarded round, getting so many days board for each scholar. The diet of those days, though plain, was good and wholesome. Bread and milk, potatoes, porridge made of Indian cornmeal, pork and beans, and at some seasons of the year venison and fish— The clothes were for the most part very coarse, homespun woolen. Most of the farmers kept a few sheep, that supplied the material for the clothes. By means of a pair of hand-cards, a woman could convert the wool into large rolls. Then the rolls were spun into thread, on a little wheel which the woman turned with her foot. The yarn thus made was taken to a weaver, usually a woman, and woven into cloth. The cloth was then fulled by being pounded with the end of a beetle, prepared for that purpose, in a barrel containing hot soap suds. It was then usually coloured with a dye produced from butternut bark. The wearing quality of such cloth was excellent. Most families cut and made their own clothes, although not infrequently there would be the owner of a farm who possessed some knowledge of the tailoring business, and who was always willing to make coats, pants, and vests for his neighbors in exchange for their work on his farm. These pioneer tailors served a useful purpose, though it is needless to say their knowledge of fitting was extremely limited. "'I spy a fault,' said one of them. "'I have sewed the sleeve onto the pocket-hole.' Mr. Burdick tells how, on one occasion, his mother took two of the children with her on horseback, with a roll of homespun linen, and rode to Brantford to exchange the linen for groceries and household necessaries. Snakes were very plentiful. They would be found running through the grain and round the stumps and under the sheaves. At first they were a terror to the pioneers, but after they were found to be harmless, some at least of the terror passed away. Still, when you found a snake wriggling out of a sheaf you were binding, the sensation was by no means pleasant. Bear-hunting and wolf-trapping in those days were popular sports, and some of them sensational enough. The presence of these ferocious beasts in the forests was a source of great alarm to the settlers, especially when any man, woman, or child was lost in the woods. In the spring of 1835 there was a memorable sensation of this kind, Miles Cody lived on lot 16, concession 7, of Zora. One Sunday he was attending the Baptist church on the 11th line, his wife and child being left at home. In the afternoon Mrs. Cody, taking her babe, nearly a year old, in her arms, went to see that the sheep were safe for the night, for the dismal howling of the wolves had been distinctly heard in the neighborhood. The sheep could not be found— and Mrs. Cody, concluding that they had got over the fence into the woods, went in search of them. Soon she discovered deer tracks which she supposed were the tracks of the missing sheep, and so followed on and on in a northerly direction, and thus farther and farther into the unbroken wilderness and marshy land. She did not discover her mistake till the shades of night were fast falling upon her. What was she to do? she had lost her bearings she knew not east from west, north from south. With her babe in her arms she wandered about in the dark for a while, but as is strangely the case with all persons lost in the woods, she moved in a circle, and by and by returned to the spot which she had recently left. She called a few times, but there was no response save the far-sounding echo of her own voice. She thought of the wild cats, the bears, and the wolves that abounded in the forest, but she did not faint or become hysterical. She knew the better way. Mr. Cody, getting home about dark, could find neither wife nor child anywhere, and concluded that they were at the nearest neighbor's, about a half a mile distant. So he went over to Sandy McKay's Russell, but no wife or babe was there. He then went to John McKay's Elder, and could find no trace of wife or child. By this time it was getting dark, and the husband and friends were becoming greatly alarmed, and many blood-curdling tales of people devoured by wild beasts came to mind. The whole vicinity was soon notified and thoroughly aroused. The night was passed hunting for the lost ones. They shouted, they blew horns, they fired guns, but no response came thus the weary night was spent but to no purpose the wanderer had gone too far to be within reach of sound of voice or horn or gun the next morning with the first streaks of dawn all the people of the district were on the ground ready for a systematic search they spread out so as to take in a wide sweep and proceeded in a northerly direction about noon they found the lost woman with her babe safe but greatly exhausted what a happy meeting! She told them how, the night before, she had become completely wearied with wandering, and giving up hope of any human help for the night, she began to think of the wild cats and the bears and the wolves and became alarmed. How she committed herself and her babe to Him who sees in the dark as well as in the light. How her prayers were answered, for she soon discovered a hollow tree with an opening near the ground just large enough for her to go in with her babe, and also the little dog which had accompanied her. Here she stayed until morning. Once or twice she thought she heard the howling of the wolves, but no savage beast was allowed to come near her. The weather was not very cold, and the angel of the Lord protected his handmaid and her babe in the wilderness. But we must not forget Mr. Burdick, it was no easy matter in those early days to secure a marriage licence, and Mr. Burdick well remembers his own trying experience at this important period of his life. Having made sure of the girl, and having got the parental consent, he set out on foot for London, a distance of thirty miles, to get the licence. The first question put to him by the dignified official was, "'Where are your bondsmen?' Mr. Burdick had none, and knew of no one in London who would assume responsibility for him. In this despairing state of mind he was walking the streets, when he providentially met Mr. Angus MacLeod, a neighbour from Zora, who happened to be in London on business, and who readily agreed to become a bondsman. But another was required. After some difficulty a stranger was secured, who, being repeatedly assured that all was right, CONSENTED TO ASSUME THE OFFICE OF THE OTHER BONDSMEN, AND SO THE DIFFICULTY WAS OVERCOME. MARRIAGE, WITH SOME IN ZORA IN THOSE EARLY DAYS, WAS VERY MUCH A MATTER-OF-FACT BUSINESS. A MAN TOOK TO HIMSELF A WIFE MUCH ON THE SAME PRINCIPLE AS HE BOUGHT A yoke OF OXEN, JUST BECAUSE HIS CIRCUMSTANCES IMPERATIVELY DEMANDED IT. I KNEW A ZORA MAN, SAYS MR. BURDICK, WHO DECIDED TO GET MARRIED, AND WENT TO LONDON TO GET THE LICENSE. The name of the lady had, of course, to be inserted in the license. This the man was not prepared for. He wanted a blank form, which he could fill in afterwards, as he couldn't just then decide which of two or three neighboring girls he would have. He was told that a blank form could not be given him, and after taking some time he finally made up his mind which name he would insert. Mr. Burdick well remembers the scenes of 37, and relates how on that occasion the volunteers marched to Woodstock, many of them for weapons having only sticks with spikes at the end of them. My name, says Mr. Burdick, was the first on the petition asking the late Donald Matheson to run for Member of Parliament. Mr. Burdick is a lifelong consistent member of the Methodist Church, but his sympathies are not confined to any one church and it is delightful to hear him speak with such warm appreciation of the Christian character and work of the late Reverend Donald Mackenzie. After many years of separation, he said, I one day met Mr. Mackenzie on the streets of Ingersoll. He was accompanied by two other aged clergymen, and did not at first recognize me, but I went up and spoke to him, and asked him and his friends to dinner." Brethren, said Mr. Mackenzie to his companions, let us go with this kind friend, for Abraham once entertained three angels unawares. End of sketch 16